0: Faith and Reason Podcasts, New Media for the New Evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Randy Lee, Professor of Law at Widener University Law School, giving a talk entitled Thomas More, Dorothy Day, and Janice Joplin and the search for religious pluralism in America. This talk is part of the Truth, Conscience, and Religious Freedom Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. I want to begin actually with a with a tour with a story from South Texas uh, Law School did not make it into the paper, but I've been waiting for like 15 years to be able to tell the story, and this seems about as good a chance as I have. Um, it's, a, it's a Robbie George and Jerry Bradley story, and uh, Robbie George has already spoken, and, and Jerry will be spoke, speaking uh, later in the conference. Um, but anyway, Robbie and Jerry had been invited to speak at this big professional responsibility conference in South Texas. And Jerry had a and, uh, Jerry had a very provocative article title. It was about um, it was about plea bargaining and how plea bargaining needed to take place. And and both the prosecution and defense bar in in Houston were just kind of nuts about this topic, and they all wanted to come in and tell Jerry why he was wrong. Um, so you know they have this this major kind of keynote role at this program, and then um, I was invited to you know. Ask questions and I wasn't really assigned any time to speak or anything. It was like a pretty small role in the whole program. Um, but in my business, you take whatever you can get, and so it looked pretty good to me. Um, so I head down to Houston for this talk, and and um, Robbie being Robbie and, and Jerry Bradley being Jerry Bradley, when they go up to speak, the room is packed. Overflowing as as those of you who are here for Robbie's talk know. Um similar to the, the response that he had here. And it was a very big auditorium at, at South Texas, um, completely filled. Ten minutes into his talk, Jerry Bradley has convinced everybody that they were wrong and he was right. Um, talk goes very, very well. And after it's over, at, at South Texas, they have this huge atrium outside the auditorium. And everybody just was ushered out of the auditorium, and they all immediately got into this receiving line so that they could meet Robbie, George, and Jerry Bradley. And this receiving line just went on forever. And me being kind of nosy, I just started sort of poking around and asking people questions and and trying to figure out about the school. And so by the time I get done with trying to talk to people about the school and everything, I'm the last person out of the room. Of course, I want to meet Jerry Bradley and, and Robbie, George, too. And I look, and I am at the end of this huge line right this line goes on forever and and Robbie and Jerry if you ask them about this because they're humble they'll tell you oh none of this really happened and there wasn't really a line how would they know how long the line was They're at the front I'm at the back I know how long that line was right so I'm at the end of this line and and finally somebody else comes up and stands next to me and we we start talking and and as we're talking the longer we talk the more it occurs to me that this guy isn't really in line to meet Jerry Bradley and Robbie George. This guy is in line to talk with me, right? This one guy (laughs) is my line, right? So I I look at him and I say, well, you know, um, do you want to go over and and sit down over there and talk? It's a first year law student. And he said, yeah, I really would like to. And so, so we go over and we sit down and, and we start talking and and we talk and we talk and talk about all this you know sort of stuff that was that was kind of going through his mind as he thought about what it would mean to be a lawyer and finally he says you know well, I guess I should let you go and and he walks away and I get up and the line is gone and so are Jerry Bradley and Robbie George right and I'm looking at this and the first thing that kinda of came to me was well I guess I took as much time with my line as Jerry and Robbie took with theirs, right? And at first that seemed to me kind of a joke. But the longer I thought about it, the more it became a lesson. No matter how long a line God gives me, I always need to treat my line with the same patience, the same grace, the same charity, with which Robbie and Jerry treat theirs. And about this time Steve is sitting back there going so what does that have to do with religious liberty? (laughs) It's a nice story but I kinda have a contract that that's what you're supposed to talk about. Um, You know there's no law, there's no government, there's no freedom to practice my religion and that's all true and so from one perspective it has nothing to do with religious freedom however although as Dr. Grasso pointed out there is only one America in America there are two religious freedoms right there's there's certainly the religious freedom that has to do with the law that guarantees my right to practice my religion right Um, But there is also, if you put the words, or orient the words a little differently, there is also that religion that sets us free. And rather than a story about a freedom to practice one's religion, is it a story about a religion that set me free? For those of you who are Bob Rice, Righteous Bee fans, or go to Steubenville Youth Conferences, set me free, turn me around, help me up when I get knocked down, yeah, it's that religious freedom. Is it that God called me to that conference to free me from my pride, free me from my expectations, free me from my fears and my disappointments? free me to say God if you want to call me to Houston to talk to just one person who needs to hear your voice then speak Lord for your servant is listening really good friend of mine really good friend of mine happens to be one of the the designers leading advocates for the um, gay rights movement in America and we were talking sort of about how that all evolved and he said Randy um, when this was all starting I told the people I was working with we don't have to win we just have to convince people that our victory is inevitable the true battlefield today was never intended to be the law the lie is a weapon the law is a barometer in the battle and granted it is an important weapon it is an important barometer right it has important consequences it has important implications but the battle is not about laws the battle is about hearts and the enemy isn't atheist or agnostics or secularists or any other ists. all is are people they are brothers and sisters and people are not our enemies our enemy is darkness, and we are called to be light in its presence. The law cannot tell you whether you will be Catholic. The law will tell you the consequences of being Catholic. The law will tell you how much they can make you suffer to be Catholic, but only you can decide how Catholic you will be. Now, it's Hard to talk about religious freedom for 20 hours and not talk the coin story, right? I I saw the schedule and like how long you guys are all locked in here, who are in for the whole show, and it really looks like 20 hours. And and I saw that and I actually thought it was a telethon. I started putting pledge breaks in my talk. Um, But if you to go to the to the coin story, right? We have the spies and they come and they talk to Jesus and they're trying to entrap him and they say um you know is it appropriate to pay tribute to caesar right and you all know the story jesus says you got the coin and they say you yeah, got the coin you show them the coin jesus says whose image is on the coin and they say caesar's right and then jesus says render unto caesar the things that are caesar's and render to god the things that are god and the spies all marvel and go wow that was so clever right and then they leave Right, and to follow up on on Dr. Grosso's uh, quote of *The Wizard of Oz*, I'm back there when I read that story, and I'm saying, "Annie, Am Uncle Henry? Right, come back. Right, I got one more question. That one more question being, who decides what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? I was I was involved once. The uh, I got contacted by a, a government agency to do seminars. And they would bring it was on religious freedom and establishment clause, and they would bring in these um, ministries—Catholic, Christian, Evangelical ministries—and they were trying to convince these ministries that they wanted to accept government money to do these, you know, government projects and get government contracts and all this other stuff. Um, and I was supposed to talk to them about the the free exercise and establishment clause implications of that, and. Um, So they, they brought in these ministries and they were concerned because, you know, what I was selling them, what I was selling them was, according to the government, if you're taking our money, you will do our services, but there won't be any, you know, Jesus loves you, what would Jesus do, let's pray together, no, that violates the establishment clause, can't do that. But we'll give you the money and you can do all this more stuff, right? And because they were interested in the money and because I'm a lawyer and kind of clever, we were in this room and we're trying to figure out, you know, how we can keep them happy and Christian and still meet the government's, you know, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And we're going back and forth and they're kind of troubled. And all of a sudden a guy stands up from Catholic Charities and he says, you know what, this really isn't that big a deal. You know, I get over 50% of my budget from the state and federal government. I don't work for the Catholic Church. I work for the government. And that's okay. And as soon as he said that, I thought to myself, how can I not be in hell If I'm trying to teach Christian ministries, they don't belong to God. Now, for those of you who are really into con law, you might see in all this a Sherbert versus Werner issue, um, which don't worry about it, it's in the paper if you ever read the paper. If you don't, you haven't missed much. Um, But Sherbert versus Werner basically says it's not appropriate for the government to bribe people not to practice their religion. And there's a question about whether Sherbert versus Werner is still good law. Um, And there was in this, I suppose, a Sherbert versus Werner issue about the government bribing these ministries not to practice their religion. But that wasn't the biggest religious freedom issue that was in that room. The greater religious freedom issue that was in that room was this. Whether we Christians in that room were trapped behind our fear that we would leave people unserved, Our longing to make a difference, our recognition that we could not possibly be enough, our desire to be more than we were. Could we trust Christ to set us free to believe that we really could do all things through him who strengthens us, even without Caesar's money? Even if we win the battle for the law, if we do not help ourselves and our brothers and sisters to set free their hearts, we will lose the war that matters. I think we all have at least a vague awareness of St. Thomas More's story. Um, St. Thomas More, by the way, was a Franciscan. Okay, it's got a. Feed the hand that, that calls you. Okay, um, he was a Franciscan. We know the story, right? Henry VIII was married in the church um, to Catherine of Aragon. Henry wanted a divorce so he could marry Mary Anne. Bo- he could marry Anne Boleyn, but the church wouldn't grant him one, which would have been the end of the story. Except Henry VIII was King Henry VIII of all England, and in this case, Henry was Caesar. So Caesar looked at the teaching and the doctrines of the church, and Caesar said, these are mine. I can make them say whatever I want, and he did. And Henry pronounced the church was wrong on the divorce. But when when that didn't get Henry all that he wanted, he looked at the bishops and the leaders and the institutions of the church, and he said, these are mine too and he pronounced that from then on the bishops and the institutions of the church would be, would obey him and those who stayed remained, survived did but when that didn't seem like enough to henry he looked at the heart of saint thomas more and he said you're my chancellor you wear my chain your heart belongs to me and at the cast of and at the cost of all he owned at the cost of all his friends at the cost of his very life Thomas More said no to Caesar and yes to God. The most popular, the most famous articulation of Thomas More's life um, is a play called A Man for All Seasons, fictitious of course, Um, and it was written by a non-Catholic, Robert Bolt, who actually describes himself as not in any meaningful way even a Christian. Equally fascinating is that most people who have seen this play or read this play are not Catholic Thus both the author and most of the audience of a man for all seasons think Henry was right about the church And Henry was right about his right to get a divorce Therefore audiences should see Thomas more as what? They should see him as an extremist They should see him as a crank. They should see him as an oddity in an otherwise enlightened England but they don't. Right? The audiences of the play see Thomas Moore as the hero of the play for standing up to Caesar. Why? Bolt explains, Bolt explains this by saying that Moore is heroic because there was in Moore a center of himself which he could not give up. Um, and it's, it's a horrible thing to say, but sometimes the author of a work doesn't get it right it's a great play um, but he just doesn't get it right because this thing that, that Moore had a center of himself which he could not give up is true for everybody in the play right Cardinal Wolsey is this character who wants to avoid war and wants the social good and cannot let it go Right? And then there's this guy Norfolk, right? And, and his center that he can't let go of is his friends. Those of you who grew up with the Michelob beer commercials, weekends were made for Michelob. Norfolk is the Michelob beer guy. Right? <laughs> He's like, you know, I can do anything five days a week. I can give up anything five days a week if you get me to the weekend and I can hang out my, with my buddies and drink the beer. Right? My center is my friends. Chapuis, the Spanish ambassador his center is his country right or wrong I love Spain I can't let it go Cromwell works for the king his center is his boss whatever my boss says I'm gonna make it happen Henry his center is his rights his sense of personal autonomy Alice Thomas Wortmore's wife her center is her family the common man his center is his personal safety Richard Rich his center that he can't let go of is his pursuit of success Each of these characters has something they could not or would not give up, and some of those things make a whole lot more sense to us than what Moore could not give up. So if it's not something Moore insisted on holding on to, what is it in the play that makes Moore heroic to us? And it's not what he held on to. It's what he let go of. Thomas More reminds us that integrity isn't integrity until it's bought at a price. And as Mother Teresa used to say, love is not love until it hurts. More is that ironic figure made famous by Jackson Brown, a lawyer in love, a lawyer in love with his God. Once we understand this we can come to see Bolt's play for what it is. A series of meeting Moore has with people who are clinging to something Moore wants more than they do. It's just that Moore lets it go when they can't. Right? Moore loves the peace more than Wolsey. He loves his friends more than Norfolk. He loves his country more than Chapuis. He loves his boss more than Cromwell. He loves his family at least as much as Alice. He loves his personal safety at least as much as the common man. And he was not above wanting to be successful. Right? Moore loved his freedom, he loved his job, he loved his home, he loved his salary, but when the time came, he let it all go. And that's what captures our imagination and that's what demands our respect. I once knew a another lawyer in love with her God. She was a Muslim, right? And she's in law school and she decides I when I graduate I'm going to practice law as a good Muslim right? and she realized that she could not work in a law firm because there would be too much external pressure and she'd give into the pressure of the firm politics and firm dynamics so she decided I'm going to graduate from law school and I'm going to start my own law practice and I'm going to practice as a good Muslim and even as a legal educator I will admit that there is a huge void in what we teach law students and that huge void is that you cannot practice law without clients. Right? So she graduates and she hangs out the shingle and she's got no clients. Right? So so you know she's waiting and waiting and she's being a good muslim but nobody knows cuz there's nobody else in the office and And the bills are coming due, the rents due, the electricity, the student loans—they're all coming due. And she starts taking anything she can get court-appointed cases. And one of the things that she gets court-appointed is a sign regulation case in New York City. She's practicing in New York City. She did not go to law school to practice sign regulation, but that's what comes through the door. So she's doing sign regulation, right? And she—she's got no other cases, so she pours her heart into the sign regulation case and she does the like this great she goes in she has the hearing she wins the case and on the way out this guy stops her and he says I am in sign regulation court all the time sort of an odd dynamic but I am in sign regulation court all the time I watch cases all the time that was the best job I ever saw in a sign regulation case I have a business and we have a lot of sign regulation issues is there any chance that we could share some of our work with you? You would do some of our work? And she's like, there's a God. All this is validated, right? So, you know, she gives him the card, and, you know, she goes back to her office, and, and like, a couple of days later, she gets the big brown envelope, and it's got, you know, she could tell there's paper in it. It's from him, right? And she's like, yes, there is a God again. And she opens it up, and because there's a God, what's the first thing that falls out of the envelope? The check, of course, <laughs> right? And it's just the right amount, right? The, the bills and the electricity, all this stuff, it's perfect, you know, and you know, praise God, and it's, it's so wonderful, and she shakes the, the, fi- the envelope, and the files come out, and she opens up the first file, and he's a pornographer, <laughs> right? And all of a sudden, she's like, wait a minute. In my vision of my faith, I can't represent this guy, but my bills are still coming due. And she thought about it, and she thought about it, and finally, she got a new envelope. She typed out a letter. You know, dear, dear sir, thank you so much for thinking of me. Um, there are issues that have arisen. I cannot represent you. Um, I'm returning your files. I'm returning your check. Um, if you need help finding other counsel, I'd be happy to help you find other counsel. Sincerely yours. Puts the files in the envelope, puts the letter in the envelope, tries to put the check in the envelope, right? It won't come off her fingers, it's stuck, right? But she finally gets the check back in the envelope, seals the envelope, and sends it back. How could she do that? with all the bills and the pressures and the distractions she could do that because she was free. Have we allowed Jesus to set us that free? During the the Korean War the the North Korean Communist Army invaded a Christian village And they herded the people into the church and they nailed a picture of Jesus on the door. And they told the people if they wanted to get out of the church alive, they had to spit on the picture. And four men, first four people in line, went up to the picture. And they spit on it. And the fifth person in that line was a young girl. And she took the hem of her dress... and she wiped the picture clean right and stories differ the most reliable sources say that they killed the four men anyway but there is some difference of opinion what happened to the four men we don't really know for sure what happened to the four men but we do know what happened to the little girl she lived forever with the man she loved Janis Joplin See Steve, I remembered. Janis Joplin had this classic line in Bobby McGee, which was actually written by Chris Christopherson. Um, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, and that line is almost right. One of Janis on one of Janis Joplin's tours after she came, became a big mega star, she chose this Christian singer named Laurie, Larry named Larry Norman to open for her which was really an odd choice because there was you know neither Janice nor her fans were known to be particularly Christian it was kinda of like Robert Bolt writing about Thomas More in A Man For All Seasons and anyway this Christian guy would come out every night in front of the curtain and he would do his songs and he would tell his Christian stories and every night he would hear Janice pull up a chair behind the curtain take out a glass and a bottle of Southern Comfort and listen to him and there she was this incredibly talented creation of God, this woman who God was crazy in love with, who God thought was more beautiful than the mountains and the oceans and the water and the stars. And yet she spent her whole life doubting, doubting her appearance, her talent, doubting anyone could ever love her. And every night she's listening to everything God wants her to hear about how much he loves her and what he wants for her, and she wants so much to come with him, but she can't let go. She can't let go of all the stuff that will ultimately steal her life. Sometimes the curtain between us and God just seems a lot bigger than it really is. Sometimes we need a savior to set us free. Thomas More would tell you that freedom's not another word for nothing left to lose. It's another word for nothing left to let go of. Dorothy Day, uh, famous from the Catholic Worker Movement, um, during her life as a Catholic, opened 33 houses of hospitality, which welcomed 5,000 poor and homeless people daily. And she did this not by helping the poor, but by becoming the poor. Um, she, I remember, she and her daughter tomorrow on the week before her daughter's wedding, they spent. Um, there was a, the daughter was moving into a Catholic worker house dwelling, and it had been trashed by the people who'd lived there before. And they spent like the week before the wedding cleaning it out, and, she, and Dorothy Day said that we would have to scrub so hard that we would not be able to get the grime out of our hands. Interesting way to spend the week before your wedding. Um, but before Dorothy Day was a Catholic, she was the quintessential Bohemian. She was sort of the queen of the 20 of the 1920s radical Greenwich village scene. Um, she wrote for cutting-edge publications. Uh, she had a novel that she wrote that Hollywood built bought for a film script for what was then an incredible amount of money, five thousand dollars. She had an abortion, a marriage, a divorce. Um, she marched with the suffra- suffragettes and got arrested with them. She marched with the Wobblies, got arrested with them. She had a common law marriage with the man she loved, and they moved in by in a into a cottage by the ocean. Um, And Dorothy Day would stay out all night in the taverns of New York talking with the most wonderful brilliant and intelligent people of her age. And when the taverns would close and Dorothy Day would walk out on the street, she would feel like something was missing. And she would look down the street. This is kind of cool. She would walk down the street and she would see the people coming into mass. 5 a.m. Mass at St. Joseph's in New York City. And she would follow them in. Right? And you you could have recognized Dorothy because you've all seen her. She's the person in the back of the church. And she doesn't know how to kneel. She doesn't know when to kneel, when to stand. She doesn't know when to sit. Um, She doesn't know how to pray. Doesn't know when to pray. Doesn't know what to pray. Right? But she came and she would go. And in the process of being there, Dorothy Day came to experience Dawn. And in the process of experiencing Dawn, she fell in love with the man in the tabernacle, so in love with him that she broke every chain on her heart so she could leave everything in her life to follow him. We don't shoot people in America for failing to deny Christ. We have our own little pricks and stings and irritations. Names we call you, jobs you can't do, things you can't say, conversations you can't engage in. And God actually has an interesting take on all that. In Matthew he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted and reviled and hated and defamed and set free. St. Teresa of Avila used to tell the story. And Dorothy Day shared it as well of Saint Teresa riding a donkey to start a new convent, and she just gets into a mud puddle, and the donkey bucks her off. And as Saint Teresa is sitting in the mud, staring at the donkey, um, she hears the voice of God, and God says, "Dorothy, that is how I treat my friends, right?" To which Dorothy Day, re- or to which I'm sorry, to which Saint Teresa responded, "And that is why you have so few." right but St. Teresa still got back on the donkey and she still went where he sent her where God sent her because she was the man that he loved. Rich Mullins used to say love real good um, and you can expect to get beat up real bad but that's okay which is actually similar to what something G.K. Chesterton said you don't know how long in my life I've waited to say at Franciscan University as GK Chesterton once said each of us has been given the opportunity to fight against the whole world itself so that each man fighting for order may be as brave and good a man as the dynamiter so that we may earn the right to say that we have suffered for our beloved and the a- and the day will come on the other side of the veil When the angels will sit at our feet and listen to our stories, and they will say, That is so cool that you did that for God. That you took that wound for the Father and you'd never even seen his face. Do you still have the scar? Man, can I see the scar? And we will say, No, he healed it. He healed it as soon as I got here. And they will say, Wow, that is so cool. I wish I could have done that. I wish I could have done that for him. We are in the midst of a war. But we need to remember, as sons and daughters of the living word and of the light, what that, word is, what that war is about and what our objectives are. Thomas More's last words were, I die the king's good servant but God's first. And we are tempted to take these words of Moore's too lightly, which is an ironic thing to do to the words of a man executed for refusing to take an oath. If Moore said he remained Henry's good servant, then no doubt he did. And if Moore served Henry by sitting in a jail cell and losing his head, then to what purpose could Moore have done so? Other than perhaps, Henry's salvation. Perhaps Thomas Moore fought so desperately against Henry's divorce and Henry's demand that Moore endorse that divorce to save, him, to save his friend Henry from himself. To protect Henry from what he was committed to doing so that if more lived through the experience he could be there for henry on the other side religious freedom refers to freedom to practice but it also refers to the freedom that comes from christ and if any form of religious freedom comes from christ it has but one purpose and that purpose is to save i sometimes laugh one of the oversights in in God's agenda, and I I suppose it's not an an oversight, but just the way he works. Um, God never bothered to tell Mary and Joseph that they needed to make a hotel reservation, never told them they needed to bring a pillow or blankets or any of that stuff, right? But he sent angels to both of them to tell them Jesus' name had to be Jesus, which means... God saves, right? The Word made flesh could have only one name, God saves. So therefore, if religious religious freedom comes from Christ, it has but one purpose, that purpose is to save. And if it is to save, then it is to save not only me, but my brother, even my brother who would take my life even my brother, who may hate me or disagree with me. How hard that is. How hard it is that our goal must be to save in that context. How free we will have to be to experience such glory. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.